You're listening to The Pithy Chronicle. History with a bite. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we bring you history's dirtiest deeds dripping with sarcasm. Are you hungry yet? Welcome back, Pithy listeners. Thank you for joining us today. We have a lot to discuss. I'm looking at the script. It's long. A lot of that's the two chapters from the Bible so I could reference without switching. Okay, because it looks intimidating. (laughs) So as a reminder, this is another of our women from the Bible, our holy women at war. Holy women at war. Exactly. Every time I say it, that's all I can Me think too. of. Me Goodness gracious, <laughs> great balls of fire. Holy women at Holy war. Holy women at war. <laughs> As a reminder, today we are looking at this figure from a historical perspective and not a theological one, even though it is found in the Bible. If that's something you do not wish to explore, come back next week for some more spicy history. Yes. So, let's talk Old Testament first. Okay. Well, dear. <laughs> exactly. What are some first blush words when you think about the Old Testament? The Ark. <laughs> That's it? That's the only one? In the beginning was the word. That's New Testament. That's John. Okay. That failed. <laughs> Eve. Adam and Eve. Serpents. Mm. Women are yes. bad. Not, I mean, yeah, yeah. Mm. Moses. Moses. We're going to talk about some Moses today. Abraham. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about some Abraham today. I know the big stories from art history. Yeah, yeah, they show up in art a lot. So, the Old Testament is divided into four classifications. The law, histories, the poets, and the prophets. Little bit of everything. Yeah, it's your liberal arts degree right there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Law. You're so right. You've got history, <laughs> poets, literature, and then prophets. Philosophy. Absolutely. You're set. So today's Holy Holy Women Women War War (laughs) is named Deborah. Hey, Deb. Deborah actually fulfilled all of these classes, but her tale is in the history section of the Bible. It belonged to a specific historical tradition, the Deuteronomic history, first committed about 550 BCE during the Babylonian exile. And so the traditional view is that the book was written by the prophet Samuel in about the 11th century BCE. And that has now been rejected by most biblical scholars. So we don't have a huge, we have no actually idea about who wrote most of it. So what they traditionally thought has been debunked. Yes. And so now we are a bit without a paddle. Without a paddle, we just don't have a singular author. Okay. Because whoever wrote it was in exile in Babylonia, foreign domination was a matter of deep concern, and the retelling of Israel's experience during the period of the judges is colored by experiences of the present. Okay. And so the historian emphasizes Israel's subjugation to foreign powers and its loss of freedom and prosperity because they were assimilating and doing quote, as the Romans do, (laughs) as the Canaanites do. You see throughout this book that there is a very stereotypical formula and how it is read and presented and written. People of Israel did bad thing. God got pissed. 
Israel is sold into exile or sold into the hands of such and such. And then they come back to God, repent of their sins. Everything's all glory, glory again, right? <laughs> so the historians schematize the accounts of the judges according to an apostasy or a deliverance pattern. I mean, when writing, we learn in our literature classes from high school, you've got to have the cyclical, you've got to have an intro. Right, the candy. It's from the book of Judges. And does that mean we're talking like really great juice? see court mm-hmm. trials should i bring my judge judy gavel you may you may bring your judge judy gavel but Thank it is you. not necessarily judge like we think of today it's the hebrew term shofet which is translated literally into judge but it's a closer meaning to like ruler a military leader or deliverer from defeat is it more like I am the judge and jury. My word is final yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, like judgeship in a tribal confederacy. The Israelites centered on a covenant shrine. And at this point in history, it was not hereditary. Mm. They, they were going through a really weird time in their history. But aren't we all? <laughs> aren't we all, man? Think about it as they're not in their reputation era yet. Okay. But they're right before it. Like Taylor Swift, 1989. That's not before her reputation era. Is it not? It's like when Taylor Swift was still a country artist. The Israelites are still a country artist right now. So the tribe of Levi, or Levi, as I'm going to say, like the britches. Levi's. They are a hereditary priesthood. So if you were from the tribe of Levi or Levi, you could become a priest. Cool. Now the judges, however, arose as God or Yahweh saw fit in order to lead an erring and hopefully repentant people to restoration and victory over the enemy of the hour. Think of Judges as a procedural TV show where there's a big bad every episode that you've got to defeat. Okay. And each story is its own little arc. Yes, exactly. Got it. So I can tell you now why we have Judges. So I was about to say, why do we have them? Israel was under a theocracy. And right now, there needed to be a person to exact judgment in the name of God. Remember, because we're still not having that hereditary priesthood yet. Oh, okay. So this started with Joshua once Moses died. Because, you know, Moses led the people out of Egypt. But couldn't but go couldn't in. But couldn't go in because he hit a rock or something out of anger. Kind of get it, right? Like, imagine their complaint. Yeah. My yeah. feet hurt. I'm thirsty. The trek that lasted 40 years was supposed to take something like only four weeks if you were walking it. Oh, what were they doing? Were they going backwards? They got lost. They got lost. They got lost and then they were straying and at one point an outbreak of snakes and like... I hate it when that happens. <laughs> they Why were lost in the snakes? wilderness. And there was no food and God sent man. There's a whole book about it called the Exodus. Literally a book. Once Moses died, Joshua was the first judge and he came up and rose to power. But after this, the people of Israel were like, hey, God really would like to have a king. And that's allegedly how we get Saul. Both the people and God were like, let's anoint Saul, who is the first king of the Israelites. And why was Saul chosen? You know, I don't know. I just know that he was proclaimed by the prophet Samuel, who everyone thought wrote this book but didn't, and by public acclamations, kind of like an election for the okay. monarchy. I wondered if, if he got rid of the snakes. 
No. So what on earth does any of this have to do with Deborah? Let's get back to Debs. Yeah. Debbie, Debilicious, Devastating Deborah. Don't, <laughs> don't hate me. I'm going to because I see your face. <laughs> we don't know a lot about Deborah. Oh, good. I'm so glad we're doing this episode. This has been fun. Yeah. And with that, I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And I'm in the middle of the episode. You don't know anything about that. <laughs> There's only a loose thread about which tribe she was affiliated with. So if you don't know, there are 12, 12 tribes. tribes of Israel. Look at you. You did know that oh. one. So we have two tribes that we think she could have been affiliated with. The first is Ephraim, and we'll come back to that in a second, and the second was Naphtali. So tribes worked the way we think of last names. You were in your father's tribe until you were married, and then you were in your husband's. And of course, any children would then be affiliated only with your husband's tribe. Got it. Like I said, we don't super know which one she was in. Different versions, different last names. Through my research, it was really frustrating because there was a lot of argument about what the translations actually said because they're in so many different languages. And, of course, the Hebrew that's used then is different than the Hebrew that has evolved over the years. Right. Some things like, who is her husband? It's not clear. Oh, big things. Yeah, so some think she was the wife of Lepidoth, and that is what's in most of the Bibles, the Christian Bibles. But the term that is translated as wife of or wife to also can be read as a woman of Lepidoth. Is in like daughter? No, like that's where she lived in the area of Uh, Lepidoth. And Lepidoth was a place name as well. So it it, could be a person or a place. Yeah. Now, if she was in Naphtali, that tribe, she would have been married to Barak, son of Abinoam, who we'll get to later, and you can draw your own conclusion. Okay. I know. Pick a flavor. So what we do know about her is this. Thank God. Some facts. Thank God we're here. She was a judge of Israel who sat beneath a palm tree in the mountains of Ephraim. That's kind of why we think she could have been in the tribe of Ephraim. Fair enough. Yep. And the children of Israel would bring her their problems and she would solve them. This could be anything. Yes, Deborah. (laughs) Move in with me. All I have to do is tell you and you'll make it all better. Oh, yes. It's like a live-in therapist. But it could be money mm, disputes, spiritual. But does she talk like a therapist? How do you feel? I'm so glad that you asked what she would talk like because we actually know because we have some of her poetry. Sweet. Money disputes, spiritual conundrums, a literal one-stop shop to fix your life and get the rubber stamp of God. Honestly, this is Judge Judy. It, yeah. Because that's what happens. These people, these yes. actors, these people who want to get paid for an hour of embarrassing themselves on TV, bring a problem, and at the end, she just tells you what to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what's most interesting to me is that it's a woman in this role. I would have assumed Old Testament, that's a man's job. So she is the only female that we have documented in this role, but I don't know that it was weird, though. So it doesn't discuss, like, and guess what? She's a woman! Do you know, they don't have anything about her being a woman, but they specifically call out that her predecessor, Ehud, is (laughs) left-handed. Like, that's a handicap. Details. They were hating on the left-handies. It was only in the last 50 years they stopped making you change your handwriting. Yeah. So, precedent. (laughs) 
It literally says something like, despite being left-handed. Despite being a lefty. (laughs) Well, okay, so that tells us one thing about Deborah that we know for a fact. She was was Mm (laughs) right-handed. So there's not another documented woman judge, but her role as prophet is precedented. There are seven female prophets within the entirety of the Bible. New Testament, Old Testament? New and Old Testament, yes. But I don't have any other reference for a female judge. Now, medieval historians and canon lawyers and all the bigwigs like We've really called in the big guns, yeah. Like to say that her husband, Lapidoth, was a judge with her because shock and horror, a woman could never be such a thing. I do just love in those moments throughout history where it is so male-dominated. And you see ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. We have seen that with this podcast. There are cultures, there are time periods where women are treated equally and women hold power. And then that diminishes and the men come back. Oh, they they rewrite. They throw out the cigarette and then they squish it into the ground. See, and here I was thinking more like they cherry pick the details that they want to remember. That too. But I just think that they shit all over everything. (sighs) They do. But this isn't a fringe thing either. It's Thomas freaking Aquinas. So it's pretty a pretty mainstream thought for the medieval ages. And don't You're get me wrong, right. A mainstream thought for the Middle Ages was absolutely that women could not have held power. That was dangerous. Yeah. So I can't imagine ancient Israel was tremendously open-minded place to be a woman, but it just goes to show that the medieval period really screwed up our understanding of ancient and biblical history. But that's a a freaking rabbit hole for another day. We also know, and we'll link in the show notes, that she was an author and she's given credit for the psalm that she wrote concerning the war she fought. Oh. Yeah. A real holy woman at war. Yes, yes. So before we go any farther, we of course have to deal with the men because they're there. They just keep popping up. We first get Barak, whose name means lightning or lightning flash. You may be familiar with a former president that bears the same name. name. Yeah. His occupation is a warrior an army commander. We know his hometown is Kadesh in the tribe of Naphtali, just south of the Sea of Galilee in ancient Israel. And we know a little bit about his family tree. Barak was the son of Abinoam of Kadesh in Naphtali. I like that we know so much about her husband. Possible, Possible husband. husband. Maybe husband. I, I have my feelings about it. We'll get there. <laughs> so then we have Jabin, who is called the king of Hazor. Jabin the Wise. The king of Hazor, which is often conflated with king of Cana. He is the second of his name, and his predecessor also battled the Israelites and the Egyptians. Busy. Then we have Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Goim, and is represented as a field commander for Jabin, the king of Cana, slash Hazor. Right-hand man of Jabin. Right, the king. Got it. Barak is with our girl Deborah. And Sisera is with Jabin. Okay, we've got the key players. So what is the story? All is well and good. Deborah is doing her thing, judging, sitting under her palm tree, living her best life. I mean, yeah. And well, men, of course, came along to disturb her peace. Right. Namely, King Jabin of the Canaanites with his 900 chariots of iron. Okay. Why? Why is he upsetting the palm tree? Um, Just because he can? I, don't, I can't really find like a reason. It's probably just because he can. Or All right, just... so he's brought in 900 chariots of iron, and I'm just going to say that an iron chariot would be very heavy to pull those poor horses. Yes. 
But it sounds like he meant business. He did mean business. And at that point, let's remember that the Israelites are a nomadic people. They don't especially have a standing army. It's just folks. Just them. Literally, their judge lives under a palm tree. Although I'm sure it's a very nice palm tree. Yeah, but it's not made of iron. No. Or guarded with some sort of... Fence? Artillery. Everywhere I have looked up these chariots, people googly gobbly freaked out about them. These were like weapons of mass destruction. This is like a tank. Like an army tank? I guess it can't be overstated how cutting edge these would have been. That would be jarring. To be sitting under a palm tree on one's judgmental rock and then have 900 iron chariots arrive would be, yes, the equivalent of some sort of a mass destruction. So she knows that these people are coming and she calls Barack up to her palm tree. Take a seat. Yeah. Would you read the next little bit? Yeah. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Okay, so that seems like relatively clear cut. I will deliver him into your hand. That's like a pretty sure thing. Yeah. You want to take a guess what he said to that? Um... I would assume that he would be like, of course, dear, because she's a judge with all knowledge from a palm tree. She's got the rubber stamp of God. Right. I would probably do it. Well, verse eight is, quote, and Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. I get that. If you've got the rubber stamp, I need that to come with me. So all my decisions are rubber stamped. You know, I didn't think of it that way. I kind of thought of it as like, nah, dude, I'm not doing this. Not without you. Only if you're willing to risk your skin will I risk mine. Yeah. I was thinking more like, okay, but I'm going to need step-by-step instructions because I'm the husband of a judge. I stay home and raise the children. Alleged husband. He's a house husband, which I need. God. I do need a house husband. So So she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless... Uh There will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command and Deborah went up with him. Okay, so... This is one of her prophecies. Sisera will fall at the hands of a woman. And that would be her, I assume. You can assume that. Oh... Interesting. She told him point blank, you're not going to get the glory in this military campaign. And he was still like, all right, let's do this thing. To be fair, based on this, he did not hesitate. Mm -hmm. We don't know how, of course, he felt internally, but I feel like that's a pretty honorable move. You're not going to get the credit, but you're going to do it anyway. But then again, there are 900 iron chariots looking at him. So you've got to do something. Exactly. They gathered 10,000 men to fight this war with the Canaanites, which against a thousand chariots is not excellent odds. But what do I know about BCE warfare? Not much, I would assume. I don't know that a lot of people know about BCE warfare. And how many people per chariot? 
We just don't have the numbers, Eric. Exactly. We don't How have can numbers. we make an educated guess? I mean, from the Roman ones, it probably is two to three per chariot. So technically, they are outnumbered. Te- oh. But they are without chariot. Yes. The Israelites have greater numbers, but the Canaanites have much more power behind them. Much more oomph. Oomph. So now we introduce what the kids these days would call <clears throat> a deep cut into biblical history. And I apologize. Verse 11 says, Now Heber the Kentite of the children of Hobab and the father-in-law of Moses had separated himself from the Kentites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zaanim beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Um, so who is Heber? Heber is one of the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. Moses married Hobab's daughter, and he's sometimes called Jethro, just FYI. Okay. So Hobab slash Jethro was a shepherd and priest of Midian. From what I can ascertain, the Kentites were a nomadic Jewish people, and they were shepherds, and are still nomadic Jewish shepherds today. So why do we care about this deep cut? Yeah. (laughs) Why do we care? Yeah. So a Jewish nomad who is a descendant of Moses' family has betrayed the Israelites' movements to an enemy commander. That's not cool. And his wife, some pronunciations have it jail and some of it is Yale, was not down with that. And we'll put a pin in her right now. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Foreshadowing. Sisera prepares to meet Deborah and Barak in battle with his 900 chariots and army. Then Deborah, verse 14, said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men following him. This is a very trusting man. Barak just seems to completely comply. Comply. Mm -hmm. There we see a massive battle and according to biblical sources, every single one of the Canaanites were killed. However, Sisera had gotten away on foot and went to Heber the Kentite, aka his informant and his wife. Yael is the only one home right now and she comes out and sees Sisera fresh from battle and waves him in and is like, hey, come in, take a load off. <laughs> Even going so far as to cover him with a blanket. I envision one of the shock blankets. <laughs> that the- yeah, he's sitting at the edge of the ambulance <laughs> yeah. with the bright metallic yeah. shock blanket. Yeah. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there a man here? You shall say no. Then Yale, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. So he died. Okay. I like her gusto. I see the prophecy. Mm -hmm. But that's brutal. Yep. You. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so Barack. He's lying down on the ground and she went through his head into the ground. Like pegged him to the ground. Yes. Wow. Here's the other thing you've got to remember. She was essentially a stay-at-home mom, but 
since they're nomadic, you have to rebuild your house or your tent every time. Yep. So this woman knew her way around a hammer. She was no shrinking violet. She had some muscle. So this was just another day. Well, he was asleep. Yeah. How, how inventive of her. Talk about using the tools that are available to you. <laughs> I guess, why wouldn't you just use the hammer? Why do you have to also have the peg? Because it makes less of a mess. Well, and he can't move. Yeah. He's stuck. Okay. Obviously, Barack is in hot pursuit of Cicera, and Yale came out to meet him as he has tracked him here and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And he went with her into the tent, and there lay Cicera, dead, with a peg in his temple. He must have been like... Thanks. Yeah, that effectively ended the war, and they had 40 years of peace. That's awesome. Yay! So that's Judges 4, and that is the biblical account. So what do we know, or can we justify this historically? Here is what I have picked up historically. And it's not much, but considering it was so far back into the BCE times. was 13,000 years ago. So we have Kenneth Kitchens, who is a historian and has analyzed biblical text and the archaeological evidence concluding that the books of Joshua and Judges are based in reality. Okay. In short, along with many other details, there is no valid reason denying the basic picture of an entry into Cana, initial raids, slow settlement with many incidental features that belong to that period. None of the aforementioned features could simply be invented without precedent in the 7th century or later, unquote. Okay, so he's basically saying this makes sense. It was not just the long, arduous journey to get there. Then you have to set everything up. It takes time. There are wars. Okay. Yeah, there is a tablet called the Jabin Tablet. Excellent. That has been found. Cool. Yes. Where was it found? At Hazor. A coalition of Israelite tribes under the leadership of Deborah and Barak defeated Jabin, who reigned at Hazor. A uniform tablet addressed to Jabin, king of Hazor, was discovered at Hazor during the excavations in 1992, and it dates to the 17th and 18th century BCE. Okay. A second reference to Jabin Adad, king of Hazor, is known from the Mari text in the 18th centuries. When one combines these two discoveries with biblical references, it seems multiple kings who reigned at Hazor were named Jabin over a period of some 400 years. So it's like George. Two things could account for this. This could be a dynastic title with Jabin, king of Hazor, a king to, like, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Or it could be a dynastic name, kind of like you said. George. Yeah. So it's clear that the writer of the Book of Judges knew the correct title for the king of Hazor. Okay. Giving it a little bit of clout. Yeah. There is evidence of destruction of the city of Hazor within their geology, in the actual land. In In the rock. Yeah. The destruction of king implies the destruction of his city. And so the head excavators at Hazor discovered evidence of the destruction of the final Canaanite city by a huge conflagration in the 13th century BCE. And this is in addition to an earlier 15th century destruction layer that is likely a result of Joshua's conquest in the conquest era. Interestingly, archaeologists discovered statues of both deities and dignitaries whose heads and hands were intentionally broken off. And this could have been a result of the Israelites carrying out Moses's instruction to cut down the idols of their gods. Okay. So the destruction layers unearthed 
at the excavations at Hazor date the period of the Judges and are consistent with details in biblical texts. There are two others, Shechem and Gibeah, that also support this, which are in Judges. So we have a decent amount of geological and archaeological evidence to support mm-hmm. the telling of the tale. Yep. There are actually, and this will be linked in the show notes, there are 10 archaeological discoveries to support the factual and historical merit of the Book of Judges. Great. Yeah. There's obviously not anything that says, Dear Deborah, Dear that Debbie. survives. Wait, I thought we had poetry. We do have poetry, that's right. Judges 5, which is her poetry. Her full poem, which is pretty daggum long, will be linked in the show notes. Thanks. I'm not going <laughs> to make you suffer through all that today. But it's considered one of the oldest pieces of Hebrew poetry. Deborah's song continues the Israelite tradition of immortalizing a victory in song. Oh, nice. Both Moses and Miriam led the Israelites in song a victory after crossing the Sea of Reeds. And Deborah's song has many Hebrew words that are unknown now, and that's why its translations vary so much. Oh, how fascinating. For instance, we learn from her poetry that the tribes operated with village militias, and that's the contrast with the standing armies of the 10th century BCE. But it does explain where the 10,000 men just showed up, came from. Yeah. There's also a reference to a practice that may refer to rowing hair before battle, which is found only here and then another ancient poem in Deuteronomy. Nice. It also talks about this structure of the tribal system, and it seems to fit the iron period rather than anything later, which is... Fitting with the iron chariots. Yep. consistent. Yep. And in the absence of a monarchy, Deborah relies on the tribes coming to mutual defense and then laments... Because remember, it was only Naphtali and Ephraim that come to the defense. Deborah laments the failure of the rest of the tribe. Like, she calls them out by name. So she asked for everyone, but only two showed up. Yeah. Ugh, rude. The economic picture of the poems suggests a lack of any centralized authority, aside from her, or economic system. Okay. And if we focus on Arabic oral poetry of the time as an empirical model, we can imagine that a poem composed shortly after the event, even within a few days or weeks, and this poem would then have circulated orally among reciters in an ancient Israel, and perhaps there were a little change here and there additions. Sure. Oral poetry passed down over millennia. Things change. Yeah, it happens that way. Exactly. And of course, this wasn't written down much later because... They were still in that nomadic era. Paper and ink is pretty daggum expensive. And, and hard to haul it around. Haul that around. Yeah. You see this in oral poetry. It's easier to memorize. And at that point, there was still a lot of oral history going around. Okay. One section that highlights the femininity of this story. Deborah finished retelling everything from her point of view, her prophesying, and the judgment of God on the tribes that didn't come. Okay. Shame on you. And we were taken out of that first person perspective into a third person narrator. And she says, through the window she watched, the mother of Sisera moaned through the lattice. Why does his chariot tarry in arriving? Why so late are the hoofbeats of his horses? This tactic of imaginatively describing women lamenting the non-return of a warrior is found much earlier in Arabic poetry as well. Remember, we're using that as an empirical model. And a poem ascribed to the famous warrior poet, Shahad, ends, 
I felled him, that champion, amid rusty armor and severed heads, the vultures waited on him like maids attending to a bride. That night his women, caught between shock and grief, prepared his corpse for the soil. Well, that's visual. Yeah, but you can definitely see the parallels between the poetry. Right. And I think it's really interesting that Middle Eastern poetry in general is a woman's perspective. Because the women are the ones that say goodbye to the husbands when they leave to fight, and then they're the ones waiting to find out the results, just like the listeners of the story. And the women have to clean up the mess once everyone's off to war. Always. Most historians believe this story is true. Yep. I like that. It's a nice contrast with last week. Today, we have a woman who is a tactician, a military leader, a judge, a prophet, and, you know, in her spare time, writes fabulous poetry. She's busy. Yeah. Although she has a house husband, so she's... So we gotta discuss that house husband. Let's do it. What makes me feel like he's not her husband... Oh, okay. ...is that she calls, she summons him to her. He has to come from Hashith Hagoyim all the way to Ephraim. So he's not living in the same palm tree area. Right. Usually married couples hang together. Well, you tell me, my friend. So what do you think the relationship is? Oh, I think she was the judge and he was the general. Okay. Maybe she probably had a house husband, but also I'm kind of feeling like... She didn't need one. Maybe she didn't need no man. Maybe not. Mm -mm. She is the leader and that's all that matters. Maybe it was like a Queen Elizabeth situation. Mm. She felt in order to to be prophet, judge, and all that. Yep. I either don't have time or I don't want to conflate. Confuse who's in charge, right. Or even God's ruling with maybe her husband's will. So, because I do think it's pretty clear what she's fighting for. Okay. Survival, yes, but also for God's will in saving her people. What I more want to discuss is how she is treated because unfortunately I had the displeasure to listen in part of my research to a lot, a lot, a lot of sermons on Deborah. Oh. I just wanted to see how she was being portrayed today. How are religious leaders today presenting the story? How fun for you. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. It was one of the most painstaking things that I've ever had to do. Were these sermons trying to explain why Deborah really wasn't important because she was a woman? So these, these sermons, one of them was like, how great of a husband was Lapidoff? He let his wife go and do these things. What a good husband. What a supportive guy. Then there was talk about her knowing her place. Oh, what? Yeah, tides of war are changed by stay-at-home moms talking about JL. So they had to really work to get this. Stop it. They didn't even really talk about how great Deborah was. It was like, look. JL, some woman at home, did the tent peg thing and look how great she is. What a strong leader for her family. No no one discussed the fact that she essentially betrayed her husband. That was my question. Was that discussed yes. that she made a decision that was different from her husband's? Nope. That was conveniently left um, out. Hmm. Oops. Much less the murder aspect of it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, how she can use her feminine skills to lull a man into complacency and then kill him for God. Oh, that's brutal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, oh. has any of this been about Deborah yet? No. Then, there's more. How good of a man Barack was to 
blindly follow this woman's instructions. Mm -hmm. And last, but not least, there was one, the only one that critiqued one of our leading men. Because Barack hesitated in that I'll go if you go moment. Yeah. Instead of him getting the glory, it was divine punishment to give the glory to JL, the female, because he hesitated. You will be punished because you were not trusting of the and palm tree I'm sorry, judge. There is just no literary evidence that A equals B. Agreed. And I'm not here for it. That's crazy. So my question today, and this is going to be super uncomfortable for you. Oh, is no. I know. If you had to preach a sermon about Deborah, oh, what would your takeaway be? Okay, okay. As a not very common churchgoer, sermons are not my, my yeah. thing. But my takeaway is not about the battle. My takeaway from this story is the fact that there was a woman who was the judge, the juror, and I guess kind of the executioner. Yeah. And that she was trusted by either her husband or her generals. I don't think it's all that concerning that he was like, you've got to come too. Because if you're looking at the prophecy aspect, like it mm -hmm. would be useful to get another one. Yep. Which it clearly was. Or if you are the leader of the people, you need to show support. What do you think? If it were me telling this story to young women or giving a sermon to young women, it would be that women's roles are everywhere. You can find or serve or have a purpose in whatever role that is. Judge, jury, executioner, or prophet, military tactician, writer, poet. Or stay-at-home mom. Exactly. Even though I didn't like how the other sermon went about it. Yeah, at the end of the day, it was the woman with the tent peg who ended this. Yep. Because she said what my husband is doing is wrong, and I'm not going to wait on anyone to tell me what's right, because I know what's right, and I'm going to take matters into my own hands because my moral compass is reliable. I guess my issue with this story or with this episode is that it's not one woman, it's two. I feel like Deborah and Jail go together. And I like how they are foils of each other. They have totally different roles within oh, society. that's right. But at the end of the day, they are both doing their job to the best of their ability. Mm -hmm. They are taking care of business. Exactly. I like that it shows the opportunities available to women mm -hmm. and how, how varied a woman's role in society can be. Right. And I think it's a good lesson for women today. Mm -hmm. Can you have it all? Also, this notion of guilt. Women who stay home as a mother often feel guilty that they are not out working, they're not using their education, they're not bringing in an income. And women who are at work often feel guilty that they're not there all the time, that they miss mm -hmm. things with their kids, that they can't be yep. everywhere at the same time. And I think this shows that 13,000 years ago... Same, same. Same, the same. The more things change, the more things stay the same. All right, Erica, before we finish... I want to know what you think they were fighting for. And I say they because I do think that we need to look at Deborah okay. and So Deborah is easy for me because she sat under her palm tree. She saw the threat and this was what God said. And I think that one's pretty cut and dry, yeah. like the survival of her people, blah, blah, blah. Um, not that that makes it any less, sorry, not blah, blah, blah. It's not like that's an everyday thing. <laughs> Just trying to save those 10,000 warriors. You know, lives. like whatever. But no, she's she's fighting for the survival of yeah. her people because she's sitting here minding her own beeswax, mm -hmm. just, you know, passing judgments 
in a positive, not negative, shady way. Although she is shaded under a palm tree. Um, and then... <laughs> And then all of a sudden here come these huge iron chariots ready to destroy them. I mean, she's fighting for her life. Yeah. She's fighting for her survival. She's fighting for her people. Now, JL is a more interesting question because... Yeah. Because she's putting a lot at risk. Do we know what the aftermath of that was when Hubby came home to find the man's head nailed to the ground? Nope. I can't imagine that was I a can't imagine it well. But I do agree. I think she had so much more on the line than Deborah because... Personally. Because Deborah's taking care of a whole tribe. Yes, personally. But personally. Yes, yes. But personally, she could have very easily been beaten to death or sold into any kind of... I mean, of... what if she missed? Yeah. I don't know. She was the one setting up and taking down tents. This woman was a pro. That's true. But I genuinely believe she was fighting for autonomy in her moral compass. For what she believes in. She thought that it was wrong, that he was an evil menace to society. she thought her husband was wrong. And I think she was fighting for that little bit of rebellion. I like it. The Bible is not a feminist document by any means. Mm -hmm. By any means. But I think that has more to do with the medieval church and the oh, outsized yeah. influence they have on what we call the Bible today. And the translations that yep. were chosen and and, and... and, and, and. Yes. So here's my hot take. I think the Bible is more inclusive than we give it credit for because we don't have a lot of the original text in its truest form because of the patriarchy. But what's amazing to me is that you listen to these sermons to grasp how modern religion is taking this story. And they're still All in. of them are still trying to get rid of the female empowerment that is inherent within the story, but they're taking it away and giving it to the, the, to the males. secondary players. The supporting characters. The men. So you know what these women are fighting for? Equality. Yeah, not directly, Pay but they are. Pay attention to the women. They are more than wombs. And that, my friends, is that. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we are Pithily Yours. This episode is brought to you by the Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer. Just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!